0: good morning everyone this is rona palmer from fluke excelix and thanks for being here today and joining us for this month's best practices webinar and i wanted to just take a moment and clarify the purpose of our best practice webinar series and in these we focus less on specific technology or software or sensors and more on maintenance strategies and we invite a Speakers from a variety of industries to come and share their expertise and I'm very pleased to have with us today from Winnipeg Canada, by the way shout out to our Canadian listeners Um, Very pleased to have Suzanne Greenman uh, with us this is the first time she'll be presenting but she's certainly not new to this industry and Suzanne is uh the principal asset management advisor of German asset management solutions and she has a whole host of professional designations in asset management and Suzanne oh and she's going to be presenting today's topic six steps to effective planning and scheduling Suzanne thanks for uh being with us today and while our listeners are logging in, just take a moment. I know you've been in this field for, gosh, a couple of decades or more, and maybe you can highlight some of the trends that you're seeing of late that you feel are particularly noteworthy.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Rona. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with everyone today. So, you know, I've been here for about 21 years in maintenance asset management and reliability. And I think significantly in 2014, we had the launch of ISO 55,000 family of standards, which is a group of standards for a management system for asset management. And that triggered significant changes and a lot more formalization of what is happening. And it has in fact, trickled down even to our maintenance practices, which is a little bit of what we're gonna talk about today. As well as in the last, uh, I'd say maybe five years, we've also had a very hot emergence of Internet of Things and industrial Internet of Things, maintenance uh, 4.0, you know, bringing the application of AI and AR to, to the industry. So a lot of the way that we look at maintenance, a lot of the ways that we look at, at asset management is now being impacted by IIoT.
0: Okay, well, that's great. I'm very excited for you to get to your presentation, Suzanne. Um, But before we do a couple of quick housekeeping items, Uh, We are recording today's session and so we have our phone phone lines muted in order to get a clean recording, but Suzanne has agreed to stay till the end of the hour and answer any questions. So please feel free to type them into the questions feature in GoToWebinar and then we'll read them to Suzanne at the end of the presentation. Uh, She's also agreed to have a PDF of her slides shared with all of our listeners. So there'll be a brief survey at the end of today's session and a checkbox where you can request a copy of the presentation. And again, uh, if I mispronounced your name, that is Susan Greenman and not German. And thank you to the listener that pointed that out. (laughs) It's a little early in my part of the world, (laughs) but so sorry. Um,
1: That's all good. Thank
0: you. (laughs) All right. Well, without further ado, Susan, I'm going to turn things over to you. Thank you so much, Rona. So a little bit about me. I'm
1: the principal asset management advisor of my own firm. So that's probably why I gave myself a fancy title. I've been around for 21 years, most of it in cement manufacturing, a good stint in power generation, wastewater treatment, and a short little stint in cabinet making. I'm an engineer by trade, and I also have a business degree, along with other certifications uh, that I found relevant. I have a quality designation. I'm a certified manager of quality and organizational excellence. Uh, I'm also a certified asset management assessor so I can diagnose what's going on in organizations. I'm a certified asset management professional and I'm a certified maintenance and reliability professional. On the personal front, I'm a supporter of the zero waste to landfill movement, which is a fancy way of saying I shop at the thrift store. So when you guys go out to buy your Christmas gifts, please buy designer clothes so that we can get them next year. I am the president of the local chapter of the Plant Engineering and Maintenance Association of Canada, and I'm an asset management instructor for my firm and also for PMAC. So that's me in a nutshell. I'm also an author. I I don't know how I could forget that. I published a book on a book called Risk Based Asset Criticality Assessment. It's a handbook that pretty much takes organizations through everything that they need to consider when developing a criticality assessment methodology for their firm. A little bit about Greenman Asset Management Solutions, Inc. We are a small firm and we're located in Winnipeg and very, very active on LinkedIn and responsive to emails. And a bit of a plug for upcoming events that I have. In June of this year, we will be at Asset Management Manitoba Summit. So that's the first ever Asset Management Summit that's going to be held in Manitoba. It will be held in Winnipeg. And then I have a course that I'm teaching online called Asset Registry Management for Effective Decision Making. And that will be on the 13th of June. A bit more information will come on that at the end of the presentation. And in August, I will be the keynote speaker for the IoT track on behalf of Akitas. I will also be a speaker at Main Train 2019, which will be held in Edmonton. That's a conference put on by PMAC. And I will also be a speaker at IMC 2019 in Florida in December. So that sums up the year. Unless anybody else hits me with anything else, then that's pretty much what we will be doing. So the approach to the presentation that I'll be taking today, I'll do a bit of an introduction, a little bit of overview. Then I'll get into the six steps and then summary and conclusion. So let's start by talking about the three drivers for maintenance management. And I put a CBR bike on there so that I don't forget. First and foremost, maintenance management is there to deliver asset performance. And what our clients, which would be operations and our other stakeholders need from us, they want the equipment to run. They want the equipment to run reliably and they want the correct rate and efficiency out of the equipment. The other thing that we need to do is to manage risks. So risks of failure, risk of obsolescence, and those things we manage through something called asset information. And I will talk a little bit more about asset information and and decision making. And then, Uh, Our stakeholders would also like maintenance management to manage costs, so we need to manage the cost to deliver the performance, because we don't deliver performance at any cost, but we need to be in a position to say what the cost would be to deliver the performance, and we also need to manage the cost to mitigate the risks. So that will determine how deep of mitigation we go into, whether we eliminate the risk or whether we try to live with it and treat the risk in another way. Before we go on any further, it is sometimes not apparent to people how maintenance activities become cost. So I want to start with the asset and usually As we are talking about planning and scheduling, I'd say do everything to avoid direct cost accrual to the asset. But how are we going to do it? We're going to say that the interface between between the asset and cost is maintenance work and specifically a work order task. And you want an approved work order task to be that interface so that you can track the costs properly. So with the work order task, internal labor is accrued to the work order through timesheets. So internal labor would be your regular hours and any overtime that is accrued to the job. Inventory items, they go through stores checkout. And then we have purchase requisitions, PO and invoicing for external services and also for non-inventory goods. So if you just go out and buy something, you should still have a work order that that is being charged to. For planning and scheduling, the drivers are first and foremost to protect wrench time, manage asset information, assure asset performance, manage asset costs, and identify asset risks. So your planning and scheduling sits one level below maintenance management as a part of it to support maintenance management in delivering value to the stakeholders. So the main purposes of the planning and scheduling strategy, first of all, we need to get the work done and we're gonna get it done through proper planning. Protect the wrench time, as we said. And the risk and the cost that we're trying to manage is to reduce emergency work as much as possible, anticipate failure, manage asset condition, and provide information, as we mentioned before, for decision-making. So best practice is that we need to have 80% planned jobs. But in order to do that, most organizations need to do a series of business process improvements to get all the various business processes to speak with each other. And once they start to speak properly and pass information from one process to the other, then we will start to see the movement towards 80% plan job. And this presentation will go into what these processes are. So, this is an example from a company that I was with most recently. And I've seen, it's not always obvious what happens to wrench time on the floor. But work starts at seven, there's stretching, safety, and then the fitter is collecting the work orders. All of that went on until 7.30. 7.30, he walked out to the job site, but as he was walking out, He stopped and he greeted his friends and chatted a little bit about what happened last night and yesterday evening and the game and the jets and on and on. 7.45 to nine o'clock, he did go and assess the job, realized what parts he needed. So then he went over to the parts cage, but then nine o'clock was time for a break and on and on and on and you see where this is going. The long and short of it is that between seven and and twelve noon, one hour was spent on tools. One hour, because he was eventually reassigned to a new a new task. Hi, Rona, Barb, can you help me out? My slides have stopped moving.
0: Okay, um, Barb, do you have them open? If not, I can go and do so.
1: I don't, but let, I can open it quickly. Uh, uh, okay, I've got it again. I'm
0: going okay. again. Okay, great. Okay. Could I've got have been Wi Fi
1: thing. Okay. So let's examine the connection between planning and wrench time. So Doc Palmer, who uh, quite famously wrote a book and did a lot of research into planning and scheduling, he says, typically, wrench time without any planning is at about 35%. In most organizations that I've been in, it is way less than that. But if you have planning, you can get up to 55%. So he imagines that just doing the math, that is a 1.57 fold improvement which means that if you have a planner with 30 persons, then you can actually perform the work of 47 people. So one good planner gives you a 17 person fold increase. However, I'm gonna say that you must have the right planner and your planner must be well supported. So why do we want to manage asset information? We want to manage asset information because the thing that we call the asset life cycle is really a series of decisions that happen over the life of an asset, okay? So when you think about it, from you acquire the asset or from you even think about it, you're making decisions all the way down. What are these decisions? Which asset to buy? Should I repair or or replace? When is the time to do maintenance? How, How much spares should I stock? So... If you are delivering value through making decisions, then you wanna make the best decisions possible by combining your financial and operational uh, tactics. And then to make the best decision, you need adequate, accurate, complete information. And that is why we want to manage asset information. idcon an organization out of the u.s breaks down uh, planning and scheduling very very simple as being a process of identifying work planning work scheduling work executing work recording work history and then closing it off with a continuous loop of continually analyzing the performance of work and the performance of the assets. And now, let's go to polling question number one. What types of activities are planned at your workplace? Select all that apply. Rona, can you go to the poll, please?
0: Sure. So, we're going to, um, Suzanne has asked our listeners the following question, and please give us your response. The polls are now open and let us know which of these activities in your organization are currently being planned. And this is multiple answers, so please select all that apply. All right, it looks like we've got about half the people voting, so we'll give it uh, a minute more. And again, I wanted to reiterate that there will be a copy of the slides that will be made available at the conclusion of the presentation. Okay, looks like we've got about 80% so a couple more seconds Perfect, I'm gonna go ahead and share the results. So Suzanne it looks like 88% Wow are planning PMS 51% Are planning predictive activities 66% corrective 66% outsourced and 79% say they're planning project work. All right, back to you, Suzanne. Thank you. Excellent. So
1: we have a, a mixed bag. Let's delve into this a little bit deeper. So, of course, you already know planning and scheduling is the heart of maintenance. If your planner is not central in your maintenance department, I could almost say that you're not doing it just right. So there is a, a, a misconception that only preventive maintenance activities should be planned by the planner. So I'm here to tell you that preventive maintenance, predictive maintenance, all your condition monitoring, corrective work that is non-breaking and such other things such as rebuild work, outsource work, capital project work the part of it that involves maintenance interfaces, those things should all be planned. And I put overhaul, shutdown, turnaround here in red because that is more of project management and it requires project type thinking. So usually when I set up a planning team, I use a different planner. not so much in terms of person but somebody who is not doing day-to-day planning and week-to-week planning to do overhaul planning just because of the fact that you're planning months in advance you need to think of it like a project because you're also coordinating a lot of resources and a lot of activities so all of these are what the planner is dealing with on a regular basis and planning. So what are the six steps that we talk about? So first is, and I'm gonna do this from the perspective of the planner, of what your planner would say to you if your planner were able to tell you what needs to be in place in the organization. So step number one is to have a good asset registry, then, have a good maintenance strategy, then a good work management strategy, good inventory strategy, properly sculpted roles. I can't say this enough. And finally, KPIs to monitor and review performance because this is how we get continuous improvement. So your asset registry contains what you have defined as a managed asset and also your asset master data. So the first thing that needs to be understood and accepted in an organization is what is an asset in the organization. So we call those the managed assets and I like to use a pump when I talk about this and pick on my electrical folks because I'm an electrical engineer and ask this question. So When people look at a pump, the mechanical people look at the pump, the motor, the wet end and the motor and everything on it and they say, that's the pump. I'm telling you from the electrical side, when we look at it, we see our motor separate and we might even want you to recognize any device that we have on it. So if you have vibration sensors, we might want all of those to be considered assets. So it is important that the organization has a standard and has defined what an asset is in the organization. And so that definition should include what is an asset, what is a child asset, and what are components, which are those uh, rotating parts or moving parts that can be put on any asset and reside in location rather than the assets themselves. And they also rotate through stores, so they usually have a stock number associated with them. In addition to that, you need to have a management of change process to decide how something becomes an asset and who can make that decision and how does the status get get changed, right? Your information standards that accompany that is that list of criteria that you have documented somewhere to say, these are the conditions under which something is recognized as, as an asset. And this criteria could involve Does it have an impact on safety? Is there any regulatory requirement for establishing it as an asset? Is it a high cost item, et cetera? So it is is all dependent on what your organizational context is. Your asset master data has the asset data record, the configuration, inventory data, Uh, your maintenance strategy information and your asset specification record. So let's start with unique asset identification. There are three ways to identify an asset uniquely. The first is an asset identification number and that asset identification number could be an intelligent numbering system that you use Or you could be using a system-generated number. I've seen it done both ways. And I can say the advantage of having the intelligent numbering system is that once anybody sees the number documented, they know exactly where that asset is and to what process it belongs. And then you can go further and tie parts to it in some organization that is not worth the pain so they go to system generated numbers which means that your cmms is what spits out the number in that case you're not expecting anybody to recall the number or to tie the number to to any activity because then that would be a number that resides in your cmms only the other way to uniquely identify the asset is what is called an asset tag. So, this is the number that uh, you would see associated with instrumentation in PNID diagrams. This number would also most likely be on the asset uh, physically. And then the asset description. <clears throat> and I'm going to get into each of these in a little bit more detail. So, Before I delve into asset description, I like to talk about classification because classification gives you an opportunity to include the class in the description. I prefer to use ISO 14224 as the guide because it, ISO 14224 was, um, developed for the oil and gas industry, but has been accepted across many asset intensive industries. And what it really outlines is a hierarchical three level approach with level one being the asset class type. So depending on what industry you are in, you might see this as equipment class type. Level two is the asset or equipment class. And level three is the asset type. <clears throat> and if you think about the asset type, you would recognize this is, sorry, your asset class type as the outer and highest level. This is most likely what your accounting system would recognize in your fixed asset registry. And your, your financial system would tie useful or economic life and depreciation to your asset class type. Your asset class is that group of equipment or or group of assets that deliver a similar function. So in this example that I'm showing, actuator or analytical instruments would be asset classes and then your asset type speaks to specifically how the asset is assembled and this is important because how the asset is is assembled also dictates eventually how it will fail and so if you look at actuator as an asset class then asset types could be electric hydraulic pneumatic we say that this is hierarchical because each asset type has only one asset class and each asset class belongs to only one asset class type. And so now we get back to the description. So we can incorporate uh, in the description, the classification. But let's start with, I usually recommend starting with a site identifier if you have multiple sites. If you don't have multiple sites and you have multiple process departments and you want to use that, that is fine. What it does is that it turns around and gives the the users who have to now search for information in your CMMS an easier way to identify the assets. So in this example, if you have multiple locations, say one of them is New Jersey, And then you include, as the next level, the classification. So if you use the class identifier, you could say pump or blower. And then the asset type identifier, centrifugal or rotary. And then a function identifier, what does that asset do? So is it a sludge pump or a sump pump? And then the name identifier, so you might know that commonly, as number two sum pump. So if you put that all together, then that asset would be described in your CMMS as NJ-pump. And the, the class is always written in all caps, comma, centrifugal. So we know it's a centrifugal pump, it's a sum pump, and it's number two. So that makes it pretty easy for people to identify it. And then we get to asset hierarchy, and the asset hierarchy is really a parent-child relationship to facilitate cost and work roll-up so that at the highest level of the organization, we can see what's going on with, with cost and what's going on with work. The reason that we spoke about defining your assets earlier is that only managed assets should be in your hierarchy. And as you're going through and building your hierarchy, you want to do everything to avoid too much granularity. So you want to make sure that you're not going lower and lower and lower and lower and deeper because the person who has to look for this, which is usually the operations person, to do a work request will most times prefer to use a wrong asset rather than search through many, many layers of asset hierarchy. So you want to make it as simple as possible. So here's an example, again, pulling from ISO 14224, where you have the business unit, the plan site, and, and this is a template. So when you do the actual one for your organization, it will look very different and it may have several pages to it. The process departments, in this case, I use uh, a cement uh, a cement mill, cement uh, grinding operation. So raw grinding, blending and kill feed, those are all process departments in a cement uh, process. And then you get to the main asset systems and then you get to child assets or components. The asset specification record This is what now contains all the technical characteristics of the assets. And when we go to set up specification templates, because each asset should be attached to a specification template, we tend to do that based on the asset class or the asset class or the asset type. So what do I mean by that? So if, for example, you have motors as an asset class, then you can do a specification template for motors, which means that you would have a template that has, for example, horsepower, voltage, frame size, RPM. And so you attach that to the asset. So whenever anybody is setting up a motor and that template is attached, it will automatically ask for those information to be filled in. For some classes, the, the various types within the class are different. And so you can't do it at the class level, you have to do it at the type level. Now, <clears throat> once the specification record has been built, you have to be very, very careful about how it is changed. So. The main reason that I've come across an industry for changing specifications or even a specification template is because it was incorrectly entered and it is being changed on the basis of a field audit. The Bill of Materials is actually the planner's best tool. It increases work planning efficiency. And it allows you to use your planner to plan multiple events and to be able to plan maybe even across several facilities if you have the bill of material. Now, the most important place for it to be is in your CMMS. Not in a folder, not on any kind of paper, but in your CMMS because it is linked to your inventory items. Now, it is really important to include as many items as possible in your bill of materials, even if you don't routinely stock it. This is because it will help you to carry information on it so that when you do need it, you can find the supplier, you can identify the item quite easily. The asset criticality is about prioritizing assets for decision-making. Your PMs and your predictive work that comes from your your RCM exercise should be prioritized prioritized using criticality. And I wanna make the distinction that you are not using your asset criticality, even if you do a risk-based one like what I recommend in my book, you're not using the criticality to determine the maintenance strategy but to prioritize it. You also use criticality to prioritize work that breaks the schedule. So if work comes in for two assets and one is a more critical asset than the other one, then you may opt to work on the more critical one depending on your resource availability. The other thing that you should be using your asset criticality to do is to prioritize your capital budget for your plant renewals and other such activities and of course if you have risk mitigating programs then you also use your asset criticality to prioritize there if your criticality needs to change it is it also should go through a change management process this is because Your criticality methodology should include how the asset impacts the business drivers of the organization. So if that is changing, it means that either the business drivers are changing or you have done something in the plan to change how how the asset impacts the drivers. And that should go through a management of change process. And if you're looking for standards and and templates for asset criticality, I've contained them in a book there that I wrote. Not plug in for the book, but it has a a world of information if you want to get more information on asset criticality. The second thing that is essential to planning is to have a good maintenance strategy, which includes how you plan to approach maintenance so what is your philosophy and then what is the actual equipment maintenance strategy and where does it come from so in a lot of organizations when the asset is first acquired the maintenance strategy comes from the oem bear in mind that this is very very conservative it is like doing the services on your car It's very conservative and it is designed to ensure that your asset doesn't fail, at least within the warranty period. And then other organizations up to, which is what is best practice, is to implement an RCM program, which will take you through your failure mode effect criticality analysis. And just a note here to point out that the criticality in your femca is not the same criticality as your asset criticality the criticality in your in your femca is really the criticality of the failure mode in order to prioritize the failure mode at some point in time once you have been running for a little bit you will want to do a maintenance optimization a pmo opt optimization activity which means that you're going to go back and look at the failures that you're having look at the pms that you're doing look at the predictive maintenance that you're doing and see if the pms and and pdms that you have in place are actually geared to preventing the failure another important part of your strategy is resourcing and failure management So let's talk about the types of maintenance that we just showed on the screen. Preventive maintenance is your time-based change out of, of components and consumables. So if you're going into the asset every three months and you're doing something, or if you're doing it by run hours, it is still a PM. However, if you're simply inspecting and looking, If you're doing condition monitoring, then that is predictive in nature. Predictive maintenance does not fix a failure. It does not correct the failure. It only measures the extent of the failure and it tries to predict when it will begin to impact your ability to deliver value from the asset. Condition monitoring is quantitative in nature which means that the the information comes from instrumentation while condition assessment is qualitative which means that the information comes from human sensory perception and best judgment so if you do a checklist for visual inspection that is condition assessment if there is a checklist for vibration assessment then the vibration analysis then that is condition monitoring run to failure should be a deliberate action that should also have emanated from your failure mode effect criticality assessment which means that it is not devoid of strategy the other strategies that should accompany it is if we're gonna run this asset to failure, are we gonna stock replacement parts? Can we afford to take it offline? Or are we gonna stock a replacement asset that is fully serviced and assembled and just waiting to be exchanged? Those are the strategies that should accompany a run to failure strategy. So your failure management program, really should begin with your failure mode effect criticality assessment, which should then give you your failure modes, which should give you your failure codes. Once you have your failure codes, then when you have a failure, you are doing a root cause failure analysis, which would be easiest done in your CMMS if you have your failure code set up. Then you'll also be able to run a defect elimination program, which means that you will be able to monitor and analyze the failures that are happening either at the asset system level or at the organizational level and be able to analyze it down to using something like a Pareto analysis to find the failures, you know, that's 20% of failures that take you the longest time in terms of downtime and also the 20% of failures that cost 80% of your repair budget. And then you should also have a mechanism for reporting, analyzing failure and determining your corrective action and recording it so that you can have it for future use. The third thing that planning and scheduling needs is a good work management system. So work management surrounds a work order. Work orders should ideally come from your job plans and generate with your PM master. And then work request, work order workflows, which depends on classification, person groups, authorization limits, work planning cycle, which is probably the most important part of it, that if your organization is dynamic, if your operation is dynamic enough, then you should have a weekly cycle with a weekly plan and a weekly planning meeting. So remember we had spoken about how maintenance costs develop uh, in the days when we started. So the basis for accurate cost accrual is when it comes to labor, <clears throat> to have your trades defined and assigned in your CMMS, to have accurate labor rates and material costs. And the labor rates here, do not need to be your fully loaded cost that includes health insurance and all of that. We just need a rate because the numbers that end up on your maintenance cost report are not absolute numbers, they are for comparison only. So materials come from your inventory items in your CMMS and your services costs come from your purchase order system. So whether your purchase order is done through your CMMS or interface through your enterprise resource planning. So a lot of companies have a CMMS in one, using one software and an ERP that does your, your business financial planning, uh, invoicing, purchasing in another software, that's all good. They just need to be interfaced and, and talk to each other. The other thing that we must have for accurate cost accrual is an accurate asset hierarchy and strict work order rules. So some of the first rules that I would say need to be in place is that first of all, the work order is the only basis for work to be done. So anybody who is working on the asset must have an approved work order. And each job, should have its own work order including outsource work and if you have so (laughs) a lot of people have the blanket work orders that they put in january they have the planner sit down and write blanket work orders for the first week of the year when work starts that's generally not good practice because each job should have its own work order because if you never close the work order the costs don't roll up and you don't know what the what the ultimate cost of maintaining the asset and all the work that's done to it you don't have that record work order tracking happens through your cmms and of course in work management work order is the heart and center and soul of it all the work order workflow is what is used to manage the execution of the work. The workflow is what passes the work order from one person to the next, and it is based on work classification. So the workflows manage the flow of information. It indicates whatever your organizational process is. It should start when the job is initiated, usually through a work request, and end when the job finishes, with either the work order being completed or closed or with other there are other activities such as the return of materials this work order workflow is mapped in your cmms and to route the work order through the system through the workflow you need to have a good classification system for work good statuses person groups defined and authorization limit and i just want to pull one here as an example so this is an example of a work order workflow and it looks a little bit complex but you're gonna find when you sit down to document it and indicate the roles for each person so what operations does at the at the top then what the planner does what the executed foreman does, and if you have an engineer in the system or a superintendent, what that person does. And if you have somebody that deals with stores and and materials, somebody that kits your parts and returns them, then what does that person do in relation to the work order? So this is an example of a work classification system. Again, we talk about using work class, work category. This is just one example of something that I did with one of my clients. Uh, When you do it for your organization, it could be completely different. For example, I tend to frown upon uh, the use of things like administrative categories because it introduces uh, a phenomenon where people add time to the work order just to make up 8 hours so you do want to be careful with with stuff like that but essentially the work class and work categories could then be linked with work priority so that <clears throat> so that the the person who is do it, creating the work request would only need to put for example the work class in and the work category, and then the rest of information would would auto-fill. So, work classification routes the work. It helps you to sort the backlog. And if you have these properly set up, you will be able to do some basic KPI calculation in your CMMS. So what is this person group that I speak about? The person group is the classification of the users. So whether you have planners or supervisors, whoever they are, but each person in your CMMS should belong to a person group. Each person group should have statuses that relate to them and each group should have their authorization limits and each group should have ownership of certain documents so that we know that we're not asking the planner, for example, to generate a work request because the work request should be generated by the person who is observing the defect and the work order should then be generated, planned and approved by the planner. So here is an example of a typical planning cycle And in the planning cycle, we essentially list the person groups and just track an entire week and show what each group is supposed to be doing each day of the week. And this needs to be communicated to all the stakeholders so that everybody knows what they are to do. And operations, for example, understand that they are paramount in the planning activity, and that they are usually the first line in planning. The weekly plan is the main deliverable of the planner. So it is the end result of the planning cycle. It establishes the priorities for the next week. We do it on a week by week basis. We're usually planning for the week ahead not in the week that we are it contains all planned work so all the pms all the pdms all the corrective works that have been planned need to show up on on the plan so that we work from one single plan not everybody having their own plans bear in mind that the priority for the week is determined by operations and consideration is given to resource availability the planning meeting should be chaired by the planner so let's take another polling question does your organization have a documented planning cycle rona can you launch the poll please
0: all right the polls are open simple yes no one quick note, um, there's so much great content here, and we might run a little bit over today. We promised to share a copy of the recording with all listeners, and if we don't get to your question, please feel free to type in your questions. We'll make sure that Suzanne, that we answer them via email after the session if we don't get to them today. So don't want to, don't want you to miss anything. All right, well let's go ahead and share the results. It looks like 38% are saying they have documented planning cycle. Uh, 62% of our listeners saying no current planning cycle is not documented. All right, Suzanne. Thank you. All right,
1: let's see if we can speed this up a little bit. But it is important to document your planning cycle and communicate it to all the stakeholders. Uh Your job plans is your standard task list. So it's standardized, can be used to create multiple work orders. Uh, and some software we call it job plans and others we call it benchmark work orders. The other important thing to have in place is good MRO inventory management planning needs this. And, <clears throat> and this is normally done through your CMMS. Uh, A lot of companies I've interfaced with don't have a formal system for issuing materials from inventory. This is really important to have because it then forms part of the basis for your maintenance cost. And here I've included some examples of types of materials that are held in inventory. Key consideration is be sure to define what what is a good and what is a service. And I've seen, for example, if you take guards as an example, if you're buying the guards, then you're buying materials or goods. If you're getting somebody to make the guards, that's a service. So that, along with your inventory master data, along with your workflows, those are important considerations for MRO inventory. Key stakeholders for planning is operations. They're first in the cycle. They identify defects. You do need operations to come with their operating plan for the following week and what their priorities are. And you also need them to identify the defects, not necessarily to tell you what needs to be done. That's an important distinction. The maintenance manager is accountable for delivering stakeholder value. And I've separated the stakeholder value from maintenance deliverables because sometimes we get it a little bit twisted that we think the stakeholder wants the, the maintenance deliverables. What the stakeholders want is throughput, quality and ethical operations. What we are delivering to make that happen is availability and reliability. And. <clears throat> We need the maintenance manager to understand maintenance processes and to be able to shape the roles because the first person that's gonna transgress and ask the planner to do something that's not in the planning role is gonna be the maintenance manager. So that's why we need them to understand maintenance management processes. The tradesman is skilled, qualified, and because he is, and right now in very short supply, we need to keep him on tools. That's where the tradesperson is most effective. The planner is the coordinator of maintenance activities, custodian of information, and the most effective arsenal that the planner has is a competent maintenance manager. The qualities that you should look for in your planner is that they should have craft skills. which means that they should be an experienced tradesperson, good data and analytical skills, superb people skills. They should be able to deal with people, charm people, but also put people in their places because they have responsibility without authority. And they should have good research skills and enough seniority to be able to earn the respect of craft people. The final uh, category, the final thing that we need to have in place is monitoring and review. This is where we get continuous improvement. We need to have senior management oversight to ensure compliance with the planning cycle so that nobody is bypassing the plan. We need quality monitoring of the weekly plan. So to make sure that we're delivering on the plan and that we're planning the activities, We need to be able to compare our PMs with our failure history, again, through uh, optimization processes. And then to monitor KPIs, and we have different types of KPIs. We have equipment performance KPIs, work effectiveness KPIs, uh, planning effectiveness KPIs, schedule compliance KPIs. And I will say, don't rush to KPIs. It is not your starting point. Get your strategy right. Get your roles right get your inventory right, then you could get to KPIs and automate it as much as possible. Because if you expect people to manually calculate KPIs, it is not going to happen. So in conclusion, planning and scheduling is an organizational strategy. It is not just a maintenance management strategy. Proper planning begins with operation or production. Planning and scheduling protects wrench time. You need all of those six business key business processes that I spoke about to be in place. Most importantly, the roles need to be defined and people need to stick to the scope of their roles. And we need a very, very solid maintenance manager to lead all of this, the processes and the people into delivering value and we need to monitor the performance of the team but the performance of the processes and the performance of the overall planning system so that we can continually improve it and this is the plug for my course that i spoke about so on the 13th of june i will be hosting an online course called Asset Registry Management for Effective Asset Management Decision Making. It's a two and a half hour course. Uh, if you're in Canada, it's $100 Canadian, 75 US. Uh, but until May, you can get it for 75 Canadian, 50 US. And I've put the link there to register. If you need the link, drop me an email and I will get the information out to you and so any questions
0: all right well thank you so much Suzanne and to our listeners we've had so many questions come in uh we're going to stay open a few more minutes and answer a few of them but if we didn't get to your question please feel free to type in any that you have and we'll do a follow-up email to get you answers but in the meantime Suzanne um let me ask you you showed in depth how uh, the nameplate information is so important in being able to define your assets and when that changes can you share how you hold vendors accountable to make sure they communicate that information to you because it is so critical to have the proper identification this is this is a key question so
1: let's take it back to how we had developed our specification template in the first place. So one of the things that need to happen is that as a part of the procurement process, your asset information template needs to be included with your purchase order and sent to your vendor and they need to fill it up so that your planner does not have or or your clerk or whoever is putting that information in does not need to go to the the nameplate to record it. So for example if you're buying a pump the same time when you send the purchase order and you include lines on the purchase order that the vendor is required to complete your your specification template and then that information comes back and if you're if you're very efficient with your processes you can have that information come back before the pump is actually installed and commissioned so that once you get going your 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 CMMS is already populated nowadays in asset management they call it operational readiness although the oil and gas industry has had operational readiness for for decades maybe so so you need to do that the other thing is to ensure that the information is not duplicated so if your asset crashes and burns and it dies, you must retire it. You cannot uh, take that information and just swap in another asset because if you put a new asset there and use the same number, it will keep the history of the old asset.
0: Gotcha, thank you so much for that. Well, to be respectful of everyone's time, Um, I'm going to be concluding today's session, but we do promise to get all of your uh, questions answered via email, and we will be at the conclusion of the webinar. There'll be a brief survey, and you'll have a chance to request a copy of the slides from today's presentation we'll also be sharing um a link to the recording that you can share with your team so thank you so much suzanne i learned from all these sessions but i have to say today was really um highly educational and we really do appreciate it we hope you'll uh, be available to present again to our listeners and thanks everybody for taking an hour out of your day thanks to the fluke team as always for. Um, for helping stage these and put them together. And please take a moment, let us know some topics that we can ask presenters such as Suzanne and others to present in the future. Thanks so much. And we'll see you all the next time.